you're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. Today, we continue our summer sermon series, I Am, with a message from Pastor Tom Wood titled, The Resurrection and Life. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. It's wonderful to be able to come and hang out. Can we give a big welcome to everyone watching online as well? It's great that you guys are able to come and join in service with us. Uh, The last thing we're going to do today before we head home is we are going to share communion together. So uh, for those of you that are in person, when you came in, hopefully one of the ushers was able to give you uh, communion elements. If you didn't get those, um, you can go ahead and cause a disturbance to everyone around you now by going to get something. For those of you at home, grab something, some bread, some juice, something to represent uh, the bread and the cup, and we're going to do that as we uh, close today. Um, and then also, I wanted to make sure everyone knows that it's on your horizon. We have Fall Fest coming up soon. How many of you remember Fall Fest last year? It was fantastic. It is a great outreach moment that we have here at the church. We immediately following service on September 11th, we're going to have um, bounce houses out in the parking lot. Food trucks are going to be here. There's a whole bunch of other fun stuff. There's rumor, there's just a rumor at this point that there's going to be an escape room over at Elizabeth Street. A um, bunch of fun stuff. I'm just going to say, this is going to be one of the easiest Sundays of the year for you to invite somebody to church. And I'm just going to remind everybody, the number one way someone will come and check out our church and hopefully hear the message of Jesus and have their life transformed is a personal invitation. We could have a commercial in Super Bowl Sunday. It would not be as effective as you saying to somebody, hey, you should come check out my church. I promise. And I'm going to let you know this is possibly the easiest Sunday outside of Easter and Christmas for you to say, hey, come check out my church. And we're expecting a lot of people to come and hopefully be blessed by what's going on here at Word of Life. Sound like plan? All righty. Well, this summer, we have been in a series called I Am. I Am, and we've taken that from John's gospel. Uh, There are four written accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament. We refer to them as gospels. And the fourth one is written by John, who is a disciple of Jesus. And there are seven times throughout that book, throughout this gospel, this written account of the life of Jesus, where Jesus describes himself as I am something. And so we're going to spend time this summer, and we're about halfway through the series now, where we're looking at the seven times Jesus says, I am something. And we started off by looking at where the origin and the power of this very simple phrase, I am, came from. And it's all the way back in the Old Testament when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And for Jesus to identify himself with, I am is to say, I am the only Son of God. I am here, I am incarnate, I am human, but don't forget, I am God and I'm here to set you free. I'm here to be the Savior of the world. And then there's several uh, times throughout the John's Gospel where Jesus will say, I am something. We looked at, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. And last week, I am the shepherd. And we're going to continue today as we look at John 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And there's something interesting about people, that typically we're resistant to a generalized, sweeping, universal statement. So if someone says, we all, we immediately go, are you sure all of us? Or we say, we never. It's like, well, never. You always. They should. We're often abrasive to a generalized sweeping statement. But generally, there is one sweeping statement, one generalized truth that I really get pushed back from when this comes up in conversation. And that simple thought is that there is clearly, plain as day, something wrong with humanity. There is something wrong. The way we treat each other, 
The way life is just flat out unfair. The way we're selfish, we're driven by selfishness. Something is clearly wrong with all of us. And my experience when this comes up in conversation, whether someone shares my faith perspective or not, rarely do I get someone argue with me. There is clearly something wrong with humanity. There is clearly something broken. Billy Graham, who's possibly the preacher in America that has spoken to anyone else, more than anyone else, about Jesus, shared the message of Jesus with more people. He's described it this way of, we've all got a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. Nothing except God himself can satisfy that God-shaped vacuum that we have. This was a large part of the message of Billy Graham as he gave the message of Jesus to thousands, possibly millions of people, is letting people know there is a God-shaped vacuum in the hearts, and that is his way of describing this brokenness. There's something wrong with humanity that each of us know about that rarely will someone argue about. There is clearly something up, and we'll live our lives often trying to fill that vacuum with something. We see when the women go to the empty tomb on the first Easter morning, an angel asks them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, there's a specific reason why the angel is saying that they are literally going to try and find Jesus in a grave. But the sentiment is so profound. Why are you looking for life in dead places? Why do we look for life in places that bring despair? Why do we think that hope and fulfillment will come from dead places? But it's no surprise because we're all desperate to find life, to fill that God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, to try and feel a sense of restoration for that brokenness that each of us know about. The journey to find life can be painful and filled with disappointment, unrealized hopes, until we realize that Jesus is the life and the resurrection. John eleven twenty five. 25, this is going to be our key verse today. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Now, this verse is a small portion from the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we're going to walk through the whole account in just a moment. But the declaration of I am from Jesus is that he is the resurrection and the life. And our pursuit to find life, to try and fill that vacuum, to try and make sense of the world, to try and feel like everything is okay. Our pursuit for life either leads to Jesus or repeated disappointment. There are churches all over the world filled with people who have tried it all, people who've tried anything and everything to try and find life before coming to the realization that life is truly only found in Jesus. And we've seen this theme of life come up repeatedly in this I Am series. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world that leads to life. I am the gate, but the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Next week, we can be looking at Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It keeps coming back that life, true life, fulfilling, satisfying, peaceful life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they largely believed in resurrection, in a bodily resurrection, specifically the Pharisees who were the loudest religious voice of Jesus' day. In the first century, this was somewhat unique for the Jewish people. Greek, Roman, and pagan cults had no conception of a bodily resurrection. But the Jewish people held on to promises from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel in the Old Testament, and elsewhere. 
And it was promised that when the Messiah would come, there would be a resurrection. And those that had died will find life again. What is predictable is about people, and you do this, I do this, is when we have some information but not the full story, we fill in the gaps. When we have part of the picture, we try and fill it in with what information we have and what we suppose will happen and what we predict will happen. So even though there was a large belief, and it was widely believed that there would be a resurrection and hope beyond death, there was a lot of mystery, varying opinion about how it would all happen. The Jewish people had lots of questions and lots of varying ideas about how this resurrection would take place. And it's in this environment of uncertainty, mystery, conflicting opinions that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this moment in John's gospel that we're going to be spending time in today in John 11, it's notably easy to see that it is a turning point in the gospel as John tells the story. It's in the middle of the book. It's almost exactly slap in the middle of the book as we read it. And the way John tells us about the life of Jesus, it is notably a shift when we get to John 11. Even the pace of the book changes. John 1 through 11 covers a period of years. John 12 through 21, the end of the book, covers a number of days. So the pace of the book takes a dramatic turn at John 11. The miracle that we're about to read about is the last miracle or sign that John includes in his account of the earthly ministry of Jesus prior to him being raised from the dead himself. In this passage in John 11 that we're going to read in a moment, it's also the last time where John records the disciples calling Jesus rabbi. Prior to that, and following this, as they go into Jerusalem beyond, they stop referring to him as rabbi and they start referring to him as master or Lord. Geographically, there's a big switch. Following this moment, following the resurrection of Lazarus, that we're going to read in a moment, following this, Jesus and the disciples head to Jerusalem where it's a countdown to the crucifixion. This turning point moment is possibly the most dramatic miracle of Jesus' ministry as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, many of you will know the story, and we're going to read the whole passage, and there's a few points where I'll stop along the way to expand on what's been shared, but we're going to get going in John 11, verse 1. Everyone feeling okay so far? We ready for this? All right, John 11, starting in verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Now Jesus, right from the beginning, when Jesus gets the news, he declares that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. That declaration should calm any fears and any concerns of anyone listening. Jesus saying, this isn't going to end in death. That should completely cut through the panic. He's the only one. He's the only one that has the authority to proclaim this is not going to end in death. He's the only one powerful enough. He's the only one that can say this is not going to end in death. And if the disciples had the correct perspective of Jesus, as soon as these words were said, every concern should have been lifted. But the disciples are just like us in many ways. We worry. We fret. We doubt. We try to fix all the problems ourselves. We wonder if God cares about us at all. We worry when we have tough seasons. And despite our doubts, fear, lack of confidence in his faithfulness, he still comes through. He still causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why is God so faithful despite our wavering? 
Why does he commit to bring good out of the very worst situations? Just as Jesus told the disciples here, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. But keep in mind, we've just heard the promise. We know how it ends. And keep that in our minds as we read through the rest of this account. Back to verse 4. But when Jesus heard it said about, uh, said about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, Jesus' delay in going to see Lazarus shouldn't be uh, confused with a lack of concern. He's already promised what he's going to do. And we'll read in a moment about the deep love he has for Lazarus and his family. But it mirrors an experience we've all had. The waiting. The promise has been said. Should be enough to calm every fear. But we all know that's not always the case. And now, the waiting begins. How is this going to come together? How is God going to pull this through? How are we going to get through this season? How could we possibly get on the other side of this? We've all been there. And this mirrors the example that we see here in this account of Lazarus. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Helpful aside, something worth knowing, is that for Jesus to go to Judea, um, there was a legal ramification of him going. Jesus, at this moment, was in Galilee, but Bethany was a town in Judea. Uh, essentially, it's a fair equivalency to say that Judea and Galilee were like two states within the country of Israel. So two different states, two different jurisdictions, two different legal ways of things going. And so Jesus being in Galilee was safe, but the authorities in Judea, they've already tried to stone him once. And the people who resented Jesus, they were in Jerusalem, they were in Judea. And when Jesus goes there, this is essentially exactly what happens. The disciples are correct. He goes there, and that's when the manipulating and the lies and the deceit and the phony trial all happens that results in Jesus' crucifixion. But Jesus going to essentially another state does have legal ramifications that he would not have to face if he would have stayed in Galilee. The concern about danger is very real. But Jesus gives them this assurance with this analogy of daytime and nighttime. During the daylight, people can walk safely, but at night there is danger of stumbling. Walking in daylight is safe, easy. We can see where we're going. Compared to nighttime, where it's tricky to stumble, that's when thieves and robbers and bandits came out, especially at that, that period of time. But we already know that Jesus is the light of the world. This is his way of reminding the disciples that they're safe as long as they stay close to him. Verse 11. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get better soon. This is another long list, another moment where the disciples get it completely wrong, have absolutely no idea what on earth Jesus is up to, they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Now the disciples, the 12 people that Jesus had gathered around him and he spent most time with and was closest to, they already showed a lot of faith in following Jesus. They'd given up so much to follow him. So much so that apparently Thomas is willing to die with Jesus in Jerusalem here. 
But still, Jesus is taking the opportunity to grow their faith and confidence and belief in him. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. I'm going to use this experience to deepen your belief, deepen your trust and your confidence in me. There's a deeper understanding that he's going to teach them through this whole situation. And this is consistent with Jesus. Something about following him means that along the way, he inevitably brings us through seasons. We have specific moments that strengthen and deepen our faith. I was trying to think of a good example to share with everyone, and I'm going to be deliberately vague about this, but a number of years ago, Megan and I were in a difficult season. It was a difficult time for us, and uh, we got on the phone, and uh, we talked with my parents about it, and as we sort of tell my parents everything that's going on, and the difficult things we're up against, and things we're trying to figure out, and all this stuff, my dad just sort of snaps and goes, gives us a Bible verse, gives us a Bible reference. So I was like, okay, all right, and I respect my dad greatly, and so I took what he said seriously, and okay, put that in my mind. And then Megan and I, we then sought out going to a counselor. So we went and we spent time with a counselor. And this counselor we went to go see, she had a real kind of prophetic edge to her. And so as we sat there and we're kind of relaying to her, you know, what we were going through and all the different things and, you know, why this was difficult for us and so on and so on. She sort of said, same Bible reference. I was like, okay, now it's time to pay attention. Now the church we were in at the time and the church where we were pastoring, uh, we encouraged everybody to be on the same Bible reading plan. And we do something similar here at Word of Life. We point everyone to the Bible app and hope everyone follows along. But where we are in our church where we were doing this, we had a daily Bible reading schedule that um, I was responsible for putting together. So I laid out this Bible reading plan and it was a three-year plan on a spreadsheet. And so I laid out three years of Bible reading plans. It was one chapter a day, and that was what the church used and to go through together. All of a sudden, this situation and this circumstance that Meg and I were up against that had been causing a lot of stress, it was a lot of pressure, it was a lot of headache, it was really frustrating, deeply upsetting in lots of ways. It all kind of exploded and all kind of came to a culmination. And on the day that happened was the one time in three years that Bible verse that my dad and the counselor referenced came to pass. That day. Now, my maths is not amazing, but that's about a one in a thousand chance. Now, now please don't hear me. That story, I don't think, is enough to convince a hard-hearted atheist to come to faith. But for me in that moment, that was such an encouragement that God's with me in this. You know, it wasn't Lazarus raising from the dead, but it was an encouragement to stay the course. It was an encouragement, no, you guys are on the right track. My dad said it, the counselor said it, and there it is on the page, the very day when we needed it the most, when it all exploded, right there, it was, we understood this is God, okay, let's keep going. And that deepened and strengthened our faith. And if I thought about it longer, and if I asked each of you here, we would have story upon story of God deepening and strengthening our faith. This is a part of following Jesus, is that he will take us by the hand and lead us into situations that will deepen and strengthen our faith so that we can continue to live a life of confidence in him. Can I get an Amen. God is so good to us that he will take us through experiences like the disciples watching Lazarus raised from the dead, like the timing of the Bible plan for me, and like many other examples represented in this room, and he will guide us through experiences that will grow our confidence and strengthen our faith in him. Carrying on, verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. 
Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Now, John has included many details uh, in this account, and it's not incidental. I wanted to pause and point this out because this is helpful and I believe even encouraging for us. In this account, we're told that the town he's going to is Bethany. We're given the name of principal characters, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. We're also told that there's many people here. There's a crowd. And we're also told that the disciples are with Jesus. Now, John is writing this, and we're supposed to read this as a true story. And John is telling us that the original audience, you can go and verify this. John is not telling a myth or repeating a rumor. He's pointing to ways that you, the original audience 2,000 years ago, you can go validate this. You know the town where this happened. You know the people that were involved. You know there was a bunch of people there. You even know the 12 disciples were there. You don't believe this happened? Go find out. You go track down people. You go find the witnesses. You go verify and validate what has been said here. We are supposed to read this as a true story. Now, if I told you that before I began pastoring, when I lived in England, I was a Premier League soccer star. And I was also a part of the England team that won the World Cup. You may have doubts, but if I say to you, we'll play soccer together sometimes, and I'll show you my skills. If I tell you, you can Google me, and you can find out how awesome I was playing for England when we won the World Cup. Or if I tell you, you can ask Megan, she came to all my games, the trust starts to build. Because I'm pointing to things that can validate and verify the huge claims that I'm making. Now, let's keep in mind, I would never do that. I would never encourage you to verify because a very quick Google search will let you know that England have not won the World Cup since 1966, and that's 20 years before I was born. And if we did ever play soccer together, you'll quickly see that my eight-year-old has more skills than I do. And Megan needs no excuse to tell people I'm full of it. So if I was trying to deceive you about this, I would never point you to ways you could prove or verify or disprove and make, let it be known that I'm lying. So for John to give the people everything they needed, you go and verify this. You, first century audience, 2,000 years ago, you know where Bethany is, you know who Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are, or you at least know their relatives and their descendants. There was a whole crowd of people there, so you can just go to Bethany and start asking people, hey, were any of you there the day Lazarus, Lazarus raised from the dead? You go and verify, you go and find out for yourself, you go with all your doubts, all your scrutiny, and you will hear eyewitnesses telling you this really happened. And as many times you'll see this in the New Testament, any times where there's a miracle and, and the gospel writers drop a name or they drop a town, it is so that you can go and you can verify, yes, this really happened. That should give us as believers reading the scriptures a great deal of confidence that the original authors to the original audience wanted to tell them, you can go and verify this and find out for yourself that I'm not just making up a yarn. Come on, somebody. All right. The account from John is different from me telling you a whole bunch of baloney about playing soccer. I played, but no one ever wanted, me to pay, wanted to pay me to do it. But anyway, this should verify this miracle truly happened. Back to verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Now this, of course, this is, of course, a massive proclamation to never, ever die. And I read something this week that expands on this, and this is a New Testament scholar called Robert Mount, so I thought it was helpful to share. Not only was Jesus able to raise the dead, he was himself, as John records the words of Jesus, the resurrection and the life, the fifth of the seven great I am statements. What Jesus means by this prophetic announcement is not simply that he is able to restore life by resurrecting people from the dead, but that he himself is that resurrection and life. We are called to see Jesus as possessing eternal life in such a way that to believe in him is to share with him that resurrected life of the new age. The person who believes in him will come to life spiritually, even though that person will die physically. This is the true meaning of resurrection. It forever frees the believer from final death. The raising of Lazarus serves as an illustration in the realm of natural life of a truth that is essentially spiritual and belongs to a higher sphere of reality. Whoever comes to life spiritually by believing in Jesus will never die spiritually. While resurrection counters the dreaded enemy death, eternal life is the glorious result of sharing the destiny of the resurrected one. And that, my friends, is some good news. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. It's worth remembering all the way back in John 1, the very beginning of John's gospel. The first followers of Jesus they made similar declarations to Martha. John 1:41. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. Verse 49, then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Verse 45, Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. You can see here, the first disciples, the earliest disciples, have an initial excitement that is now, we come to the time of Martha, years later, it's matured into a deeper, fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to trust and have faith in Him. We get a strong response from Mary. In the face of tragedy, in a desperately dark day, she's still rooted strongly into Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. The initial excitement we see from the first disciples has now grown, it's matured, it's deepened. As Martha, on a tragic day, is still committed, still strong in faith in Jesus. Carrying on, verse 28. Then she returned to Mary, she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and so the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. 
Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Verse 35 in that portion we just read, it's famous for being the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Then Jesus wept. A question worth asking is, why did Jesus weep? Jesus is clearly in control of the situation. A surface reading of the text, it shows that Jesus is in complete command of the situation. The people at the scene, they make two wrong assumptions about why Jesus is crying. First is he's distraught because he loves Lazarus so much and is grieving his loss. The second is a suggestion that he's weeping because he was unable to keep Lazarus alive. Both of those would say that Jesus is either hopeless or powerless. See how much he loved him and how upset he is and how grief-stricken he is that he's gone. Hopeless, unable to help, unable to change anything. Or the second, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Powerless. The answer we find in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Why was he angry? Why was he weeping? The simple answer is Jesus was weeping at the hardship of humanity. The hardship of humanity, the difficulties of life, the confusing things in life, the unfair things, the hurt that humanity goes through. One thing I've observed in talking with people and even my own experience, you and I, we were not designed to cope with death. It's not part of our original makeup. When God created humanity and he hardwired us, we were not designed, we were not built to cope with losing loved ones. It's not part of our DNA. That's why as an emotion and as an experience, it's so foreign to us. That's why decades later, grief is still very real for people. I spoke to someone, a, a good friend of mine. He had a terrible story. He had an explosive argument with his parents when he was 16. And they drove off and everyone was angry and everyone was furious at each other and a car accident took both his parents. The last exchange they had was anger and bitterness and rage. He'd since become a Christian and gotten saved. And he said to me that you never get healed from grief, you just learn how to manage it. I'm sure that most of us here, if not every single one of us, understand what that means. It's not part of how we're designed. God didn't put us together. He didn't knit us together to cope with that kind of pain. We were never wired to be so untrusting of each other. We weren't put together. We weren't designed by the creator of the universe to be driven by selfishness. We're not functioning properly. And we can't function properly until we restore our broken relationship with God. It's all a part of the human problem. It's all a part of the sin problem that Jesus came to defeat. It's all a part of that God-shaped vacuum that Billy Graham talks about. So much despair is the consequence of that God-shaped vacuum in our lives and the problems that come from us trying to fill it ourselves, driven with selfishness, driven with self-absorption. It only leads to more and more devastation. Jesus weeping at the sorrow, pain, and hopelessness that everyone is experiencing is another reminder of God's motives and heart for humanity as he sends the son to become the savior of the world on the cross.
Jesus' motive for going to the cross is better represented in the pain he experienced that day at the brokenness and the hardship of humanity than any comprehension of anger and wrath or vengeance. It was love that put Jesus on the cross. It was the hardship of humanity that affected him and caused him to weep that day. Verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Now there was a cultural belief that Jewish people often had in the first century that for three days after someone died, the, their spirit or their soul would sort of be in close proximity to the body. But after three days, the soul went into eternity. So hearing that Lazarus had been dead for four days, it, it has a meaning. It's not necessarily a meaning or a tradition that's rooted in the Bible, but it was a common tradition at the time. So what John is making sure that people know and what we get from this experience and the way that Jesus orchestrated this is that there is no doubt in anyone's mind, Lazarus is not just dead, he's really dead. He's gone. There is no hope for a miracle here. And Mary doesn't appear to know why Jesus is asking for the tomb to be opened. And who can blame her? The question of Lazarus walking out of the tomb doesn't appear to be on anyone's mind that day. But Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? Now remember, Jesus already made a promise about this. He used very similar language back all the way back in verse four. Lazarus sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Didn't I tell you, you would see God's glory if you believed? This is so the disciples, Lazarus' family, the crowd, the first people John was writing to, and all who would ever hear this story, which today is billions and billions of people, can see the glory of God and be amazed at the unique power and wonder of the Son. For the people there that day, it appears that there was not a single person asking Jesus for this miracle, despite the promise that this would not end in death. My friends, it's good news for us that Jesus doesn't hesitate to fulfill his promises even when we've completely lost sight of what he has said, how he's been faithful in the past, and how he's been faithful in the lives of people around us. Paul writes to Timothy, if we are unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Despite the lack of expectation of raising Lazarus from the grave, Jesus is determined that through this, God's glory will be shown, that the Son will be magnified and faith will be strengthened in the hearts of people. Carrying on verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. A consistent factor, consistent element in the ministry of Jesus consistent theme that comes up repeatedly in his life is that talk is cheap. We frequently see Jesus back up his words, his teaching, his declarations about who he is with action. Jesus is the greatest teacher the world will ever know, but it's always backed up with action. Here, it's backed up with the raising of a man from the dead. 
the other I am statements that we've covered so far, light, bread, gate, shepherd, they show that this is not Jesus saying, I can give you light or I can give you bread, but rather I am the light. I am the bread. He is those things. Once again, we see today we're not told you can find life and resurrection through me or I can help you find life, but rather I am life. I am the resurrection. Jesus is not the distributor of happiness. I don't simply give you life, I give you myself. By coming into a right relationship with me, by being united with me, you share all that I am, including bread, sustenance, light, purpose, promise, and freedom, protection, guidance, love, and peace. Not because Jesus merely gives us those things, but because that's who he is, and he's given us himself. When I was in Bible college, I first heard something that I've heard many times now. It's often said that there are three things that men who are pursuing a life of faith, who are committed to following Jesus, there's three things that will trip them up. It's known as the three G's, girls, gold, and glory. We could phrase it, sex, money, and power. Now, don't take my word for it. You think about it, you weigh it up. How many of the world's problems are directly caused by an unhealthy craving for sex, money, and power. You, you think about it. Don't take my word for it. You think about it. Sex, money, power. How many of the world's problems are rooted directly or indirectly in either of those three things? Now, I don't think any one of us here are qualified to put a percentage on it. But I do think if we're all honest, we can agree that if we snapped our fingers, and all the problems related to those things were suddenly gone and suddenly disappeared, there won't be many problems left for us to figure out. While the unwavering temptation is to fill the God-shaped vacuum in our hearts with the three Gs, the Savior of the world lovingly says, that won't help, but I can truly, completely, and eternally fill that vacuum. I can give you peace and joy and redemption because I give you myself and I am the resurrection and the life. I remain convinced that the problems of sin, the problems of trying to find life in sex, money, and power are completely self-evident. And I do believe that anyone who will objectively take a step back and honestly question whether a greater demand and a greater supply of all these false promises has brought more life or more death. If anyone will honestly ask that question, I believe they will easily find the answer. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And for those who've restored their relationship with God, we can stop the empty pursuit of sex, money, and power but it does allow us to show the world how God can fill the most obvious desires of the human heart. With Jesus at the center of our lives, the center of our outlook, the center of our values, sex, money, and power, I believe, becomes family, generosity, and servant leadership. Rather than a pursuit to try and fill a vacuum with sex, money, and power, instead, we have found life. The vacuum has been filled. The brokenness has been repaired. 
So now we can embrace family. Now we can embrace servant leadership. Now we can embrace generosity. It's not sex, money, and power anymore. It's family. It's generosity. It's servant leadership. The Bible is filled with stories that warn of the danger of dysfunctional families. Some of the great biblical heroes made terrible decisions regarding their families, and it always leads to problems and heartache. The Bible is also filled with strong instructions to love and honor our families. For husbands, gentlemen, this means respecting your wife. Honor the hard work she does to keep the family together. Recognize the sacrifice she's making every day to keep the home intact. Wives, respect your husband. Honor the hard work he does to keep the family together. Recognize the sacrifice he's making every day to keep the home intact. Kids, respect your parents. Honor the hard work they do to keep the family together. Recognize the sacrifice they make every day to keep the home intact. This means parenting with love and patience. This means trust and honestly telling the truth. This means only having eyes for your spouse, whether it's online or in real life. This means treating our family with kindness and helping each one be all that God made them to be. We talk about being generous. This is far much more than money. It means a deep concern for those around us. It means caring when our community is feeling a hurt. This is a call for the church to rise up and help any way we can. We don't wait for someone else, but we find a way. We may not be able to fix all the problems around us, but with a generous mindset, we can find ways to fix some. Generous people are joyful people because they're finding out the scriptures prove true. When Jesus says it's better to give than to receive, or when the Proverbs say those that refresh others will themselves be refreshed, generous people find out just how true those scriptures are. While the promise of the world is get more, acquire more, think only of yourself, be fed with greed, those that have a generous spirit find true, indescribable joy. We also can embrace servant leadership rather than a crave for power. Humans have a consistent track record of power grabbing ever since the fall in Genesis 3. The instructions from Jesus are as challenging today as they were 2,000 years ago. As he says that you know the rulers of this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, among us, among the people of Word of Life Church, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. While many are fighting, manipulating, scheming to get more and more power among you, it will be different. I believe in leadership. I believe in having a positive influence, having a voice of authority. I believe that all of Jesus' followers are called to make a positive difference and have meaningful influence in some area of life. That means leadership, but it doesn't come through grabbing for power, but by serving others and caring about those around us. And, um, my eight-year-old son, this is a few years ago now, he just asked me one day, he's like, Dad, are you the boss at church? I go, I mean, kind of. And he said, well, what does that mean? So I remembered the Einstein quote that you don't really understand something until you can explain it to a five-year-old. I was like, oh gosh, how much do I really understand this? And what I said to him is, a boss helps everyone else do a good job. I was pretty proud of myself. Oh, that's pretty good. Servant leadership, helping everyone else do a good job, caring about the well-being of everyone else. 
when we have a restored relationship with God, found true life because of Jesus, we can embrace strong families, generous outlook, consistent servant leadership. And I believe that we'll be a lighthouse to people who are still looking to sex, money, and power to fill the God-shaped vacuum that Billy Graham warned us about. It might help people realize that they are looking for life in dead places. The deep desire within all of us easily drives us to look for life in any number of places. It always disappoints. Even good things, noble things turn sour when we give them way too much emphasis. We all know people who have plenty of money in the bank, but they're deeply angry, bitter people. We know people who've achieved great things, yet their personal life is a disaster. We see the rich and famous, the people who have an excess of all that the world has to offer. They have an excess of all the things that the world is screaming are the best remedies for filling that God-shaped vacuum. And yet we're inundated with stories about celebrities' lives falling apart through addictions, bad relationships, and depression. Two things are completely self-evident. That we're aware that something is wrong and our attempts to fix it haven't worked. The God-shaped vacuum can only be filled by God Himself. The promise of Jesus is not, I will give you something to fill the vacuum, but I give you myself. I will fill the vacuum. I will mend and repair and restore the brokenness. That vacuum, it's our broken relationship with God. And He has done everything to restore that relationship. Our sins, our mistakes, our useless attempts at filling the vacuum have completely disqualified us from a relationship with the Holy God. But His unrivaled love for us caused Him to send His Son to pay the price on the cross, that price that we could never, ever pay. In our desperate pursuit of life, our responsibility is to keep coming back to the right answer. Verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. No longer grieving without hope, no longer looking for life in dead places. While the world is trying to find life in sex, money, power, or whatever else, the church can embrace the life of Jesus and find joy in having strong families, a generous outlook, and consistent servant leadership. We can live in Him and never, ever die, but instead have an unshakable hope in eternity with Him. I've got a couple of questions for you. If you want to go ahead and write these down. If you're in one of our summer small groups, you'll be covering this this week together, but maybe it's good just to get some time by yourself to reflect on these. First question is this. What's a moment that has deepened your faith? I told you my story about the Bible plan lining up perfectly with what was going on in our lives. But what's the moment that has deepened your faith? Maybe you've got many. But do you reflect on that moment or those moments often? Do you remind yourself of how God came through before to give you confidence that He is still working? Do these moments still cause you to wonder at how amazing God is? What's a moment that has deepened your faith? Second question, what would change 
if we only look to Jesus for life instead of anywhere else? Now, the easy answer to this is everything would change. But what for you specifically? You may have been a believer for a long time, but is there somewhere that you've been trying to find life and fill that God-shaped vacuum instead of Him? What would change if we only looked to Jesus for life instead of anywhere else? Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha is the person Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago and put to her the question, do you believe this? That same question comes to you and I today. You may have heard that question. You may have answered that question, yes, confidently years ago, and you are going strong in your faith. You may hear that question, and you may get real uncomfortable. My friend, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. If you believe that the Son of God loves you so much, motivated purely by a love for humanity, both you and everyone else, that he came, he paid a price on the cross that you and I could never, ever pay. If you believe that, you are out of excuses for waiting another day to delay following him. This is it. This is the moment. There's no need to wait. There's nothing good to wait for. This is life is in him. So I want to invite everyone here, if you mind just closing your eyes, bowing your heads. This is just gives some discretion. Make sure that everyone around you has a moment to focus on what really matters right now. But if you be honest enough and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start. If I was asked directly, do I believe? The answer is yes. I'm ready to respond and I'm ready to follow. If that's you today, would you mind just putting your hand in the air? So when we pray in a moment, I know who we're praying for. Amen. Wonderful. Anybody else here? Thank you. Amazing. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? I promise we won't do something to embarrass you. When we pray, I'd love to know who we're praying for. Amen. Anyone else? Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people making the best decision they could ever make in here. Amen. Wonderful. Well, we do this at the end of every service. We're going to have words on the screen. There's a prayer that we pray together. And I believe that when you pray a prayer like this, full of faith, things start to change. So come on, everybody. Let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's celebrate with people. Amen. Wonderful.